Okay, you guys, unless you're a serious techno geek who knows all the cutting edge technology way before the rest of us do, you have either never heard of or are just hearing about non-fungible tokens, also known as NFTs. I know, I know, I know. It's, it is so crazy right now what's happening with NFTs. We're going to get into that. But from Beeple to Taco Bell to Elon Musk to Grimes, Elon's partner, brands and individuals have been hopping on this NFT train to sell or buy their unique digital asset. All right. So don't freak out if you're saying, I heard about NFTs. I have no idea what they are. It's become such a thing that we thought, let's bring in somebody who has from the beginning been at the forefront of the industry. And the best part, he also has a totally incredible story packed with self-taught knowledge. I want you to meet Dan Kelly, founder and president of nonfungible.com. Dan grew up with a passion for computers and coding, but without any formal education, he launched his startup, nonfungible.com, just two years ago. But today, with the volume of global NFT trades passing, are you ready? Half a billion dollars. NFTs are the new craze. And Dan is the person you need to hear from. Dan, welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. And thanks for having me, Liz. It's so good to have you. Okay, so I wish people could see you. You are so laid back, so relaxed. You got the hair, you got the thing. You're just chilling up in... <laughs> Northern Canada, Western, Eastern, we're not going to say exactly where. Let's put it this way. You do know one thing, everything about NFTs. And I guess it would probably be best to have you start with what everyone might be thinking right now. What is it? What's a non-fungible token? <laughs> so it's it's definitely something that's confusing to, to a lot of people. It's, it's a new concept uh, in many ways. Um, so I've always equated NFTs to... They're, they're digital collectibles at their core. It's a way to um, prove ownership of digital items. Um, so whether that's collectibles or, or game items or digital artwork, um, it's quite incredible the, the different kinds of digital items that uh, NFTs can represent. What you just said is really important. It's proof that you own it. So really, mm -hmm. is it fair to say it's a not a link? I'm really showing my idiocy right now, but some part of the blockchain, the digital ledger that shows, okay, I own this thing. It's not on my wall, even though it's a painting, but I own the digital part of it. Why, why would I want that? Um, think of it as like a, I think of it as like digital certificate. So you might own a piece of artwork um, that's, that's really renowned, but who's to know whether you printed that off somewhere or you bought it from someone else some some kind of um, yeah, fraudulent copy. Um, so normally you would have some sort of clearinghouse or, or some sort of third party entity who certifies the, the, the validity or the, the authenticity of that piece with blockchain. It, it does it um, automatically. Uh, I mean, you have that whole history, the whole provenance history um, of the items so that you can trace it yeah, if it's an authentic item. And again, it, it boils down to the ownership. So you are the only one who can interact with that item or, or send it away or do anything with it. This began to really go mainstream and get massive mm -hmm. traction uh, a month or two back with the sale of this piece by an artist named Beeple. And boy, mm -hmm. I'll tell you, the piece was absolutely gorgeous, millions of colors. I thought it was wonderful. And, and then I thought, wait a minute, it's selling at Christie's for $69 million, but whoever bought it as a digital token does not have it then on his or her wall. 
so that he can show somebody when they walk into the house. <laughs> Jackson Pollock, my dog playing poker on velvet. I mean, this to me is very hard to wrap my mind around. That's where the beauty comes in because they can, they're not placing it on their physical wall where only their close friends and family are, are noticing it. They're, they're placing it on their Facebook wall, uh, on their Twitter feed. Um, and it's like that global uh, audience that they're reaching. And then, of course, everybody who sees that can verify that they do indeed own that. So it is some kind of status symbol, um, just like regular art, like, like physical art would be, except it is it's on a more digital and global scale. I want you to rewind, Dan, if you could, to when you first heard the term non-fungible token. When was that? And uh, what did you think? And what did you do? Oh, gosh. Um, so it was back in 2017. Um, I was going to say the last quarter of 2017. Um, I was getting back into cryptocurrencies, um, doing research, reading dozens of white papers, um, really trying to do my research into these different projects and kind of the value they provided. Um, and I st personally, I stumbled across a project called Decentraland, um, and it's a virtual world. Um, so they were doing this big token sale, just like uh, Ethereum and Bitcoin, all these crazy cryptocurrency token sales you hear of. But once I actually went and read into the, the papers, into the details, and I found that they were actually going to use the blockchain to sell unique assets. So not only like fungible currencies, um, but non-fungible unique items. So in the case of Decentraland, it was plots of land on a virtual world. So you actually had a, a coordinate in the world. Um, so when I was reading through that, I was just, I was completely blown away by the concept. Um, and it just, it seemed so decades advanced uh, or decades ahead of what um, I was expecting from cryptocurrency, I guess. And it, it just sent off a lot of light bulbs um, in my head for all the different use cases that we can, we can use this stuff for. And then when did you say, wait a minute, there might be gold or crypto and then their hills and, and I want to do this website. What were the digital items that you started with on nonfungible.com? I have a habit of collecting things. Um, yeah, I'm just looking at my shelf next to me and I have like books and newspapers um, that I found in old houses that I've renovated or, or um, old records. Like I have some of the old Def Jam records um, from way back then. So I really had this collector mindset. And part of that, <laughs> I'm also a tech junkie. Um, so I do own a lot of domain names. So as soon as I started getting into this Decentraland project, it was one of my first things to look into, I went and looked for nonfungible.com domain name. So I think it was partly coincidence um, that it was available and that somebody hadn't taken it because you know, single word domain names are extremely difficult to find. Um, but I sat on that domain for a few months before I realized that there was a need in the market for the services that we provide today. Going to Decentraland, how much would it cost me to get a coordinate? <laughs> right Anybody now, I think uh, um, actually Decentraland has become um, definitely kind of the industry standard. And, and at one point they were, it was almost like they were priced out of reach for most people, but now they seem to be one of the more reasonably priced ones. Um, so when I got in, I think plots were $26 a piece. Um, now, if you want to buy a plot, since they aren't making any new plots, you have to buy it from the open market and you're going to spend upwards of $1,000 um, for a, a plot of land, a plot of virtual land, 16 meters by 16 meters. So let's be clear, you can't build a beach house on this thing. 
You can build a virtual beach house. (laughs) (laughs) And the sky's the limit. (laughs) We're going to continue to sort of try and let people understand why somebody would spend $69 million on a piece of art that they cannot ever Mm -hmm. touch or hold. But I'm more interested as well in your story, your incredible story. Take me back to, to growing up. Where did you grow up and what oh man what triggered your computer and technology love the video games are what really triggered my passion i wanted to be that guy to create those games i mean i was playing them at my grandmother's house they were forbidden at my my parents house both my mom and my dad said no no video games in the house no consoles no nothing so (laughs) i'd go to my grandmother's house she had a regular nintendo there and I, i played that quite a bit um so i think part of that like video games are forbidden in the household is kind of what drove me more into that scene. Um, I think it it just kind of evolved from wanting to build video games to to general programming as, as the video game industry advanced so quickly as well. It wasn't so much these simple Super Mario games anymore. And you were self-taught? Absolutely. Yeah. So I didn't, I started learning how to program on my own around the age of 12 or 13. I didn't, I don't come from a family of wealth or of, um, yeah, anything like that. I mean, my, my, my mom was a, a factory worker. She, she worked the nine to five her whole life, kind of like, and my dad was the same. He was a construction worker. So I didn't really have a whole lot of, I guess, support on that level. Um, and I just kind of got into it naturally. Um, again, had a restriction at the house. We always had a much older computer than what was current. So I'd go over to my friend's house. They'd have all the cool games. At, at our house, we had a, a really old computer that we really couldn't even play games on. So I had to find different ways um, to use the computer. And I started doing like little animations. Um, I, I signed up for my first PayPal account around the age of 13. And that was so that I could buy um, programming books um off of ebay uh back then um and i'm sure if ebay finds out they're going to close my account but um yeah (laughs) so i bought some some programming books back then and started learning so i guess like i was saying like don't not coming from yeah a family of a lot of money who can spend um on all these resources and afford to find me the right mentors and do all that kind of stuff i think i kind of fell out of it um because i didn't have anyone to look up to i didn't have that support structure in the house to really feed that passion um so in my teenage years um i kind of fell into like i guess what most people call the wrong crowd and i mean all great people but um yet not doing the right things um getting into drugs skipping school um doing a lot of that stuff so like from the age of 15 to about 18 um i dropped out of school i was following the same path as as my parents did when they were younger um working in the factory jobs um just trying to just trying to keep the job and, and meet ends meet and it wasn't until about i met my wife in 2005 um, so there's about the three years there where I was definitely at a low point in my life. Um, and then I met her and she kind of picked me up and instilled some of that confidence back in me. And then it was, yeah, after the 2008 crash, um, I, I was really, I was working one of a manufacturing job. So sorry, just rewind a little bit. Um, a lot of the jobs I was working before that in manufacturing, since I was so young as 15, 16 years old, 
as soon as the employers found out how old I was, it, it wasn't a matter of days or hours before they kicked me out the door. Just because, I mean, you, you had to legally be 18 years old to work in a lot of those places. Yeah, there, there's a um, called child labor laws. <laughs> yeah, so I, I managed to slip through the cracks um, through temp agencies and stuff like that so I could find work. I mean, at such a young age, and it was important for me to earn money so that I could buy the things that I wanted. I, I wasn't getting them in the household, so I had to figure out how to do it on my own. So, yeah, in the 2008 crash, um, that was kind of my first job where I just turned 18, so they kept me on board. I did my six-month probation. Everything was going well. And then the, the crash, and they, they laid off, uh, I think, like half the factory at the time. Hmm. So it was at that time where I finally found someone um, who, who I considered a, a close friend who became a mentor. And I really just decided, like, I need to keep doing these, these jobs um, so that I can keep paying the bills, but I need to do something and I need to stick to it um, so that I can come out at the end with, with some skills for something I want to do. I mean, I always had a passion for programming, so that was a natural selection for me. Can I just ask, what was the manufacturer making where you were on the factory assembly line? Um, so mostly it was in the auto industry. Um, there was a lot of different, like just small parts, um, for different vehicles. The, the one job, um, that I was let go of in 2008 was, uh, working for Skyjack. So it was mostly like a welding shop. You've probably seen those boom lifts, um, and they manufacture yes. those there. But that, that's a pretty big leap from being laid off in 2008 to actually mm-hmm. really getting your act together and starting this company where you were able to really generate some revenue. Tell me mm-hmm. about that moment where you went from a website and trying to program it and trying to deal with what was an extraordinarily early nascent stage of non-fungible tokens to, hey, I, I could make a living off this. So, yeah, when we started developing, I think for me personally, it was... It was more philosophical and it was kind of like a hobby at the same time. So like, I really believe in, in cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. And then of course, with NFTs bringing this digital ownership it is really a, a philosophical thing for me, um, where I truly believe that Bitcoin and, and NFTs are going to change the world for the better. Um, they're going to keep people accountable. Um, everything is trackable and traceable on the blockchain. Um, so when we're hearing all of this, uh, like companies doing wrong or putting money uh, where it shouldn't be going, at least on the blockchain, like that's all completely traceable. Um, you might not know exactly where the money's going, but you know it's going somewhere it shouldn't be if, if they aren't disclosing it. So I think on the grand scheme of things, um, I just, I'm really passionate about blockchain um, and decentralization. I mean, decentralization at its, at its most basic form is like the truest democracy there can be. Um, Can I jump in there? Uh, The whole attraction for a lot of people was it's anonymous. And yet Mm -hmm. you and everybody else say you can track it. There's an actual digital ledger. How do you square Mm -hmm. those two things? Um, So it's pseudonymous is is what they call. So it's you you have a wallet address and that wallet address is for all intents and purposes, it's anonymous. You can create a wallet on a piece of paper. You don't have to tell anybody about it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And people can transfer money to you. So it's traceable and that everyone can see that money's going to that wallet. 
that wallet address is not necessarily tied to your name until you perform a transaction with, with some big corporation um, or to withdraw to fiat, uh, say, where, where they do like different KYC checks and they verify your identity. Okay. Um, so it's, it's your wallet is, is kind of anonymous, but there are, of course, it's all traceable, uh, every transaction. With NFTs, you have to tell me, for example, one that you bought, aside from, let's say, the coordinate of digital land. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the cat one. Um, so, I mean, the CryptoKitties were like the very first, uh, they were the first project to use an, a non-fungible token standard. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were really the first to, to explode in popularity. So I bought one of those mostly just to see what it was all about. Um, I mean, I'm not big into cats, but I mean, they have this whole ecosystem of, of different games. You can play with the cats. You can breed two cats together and it'll take both two trades from the parents. And it's just kind of like a, a fun kind of, uh, yeah, nothing serious, but it's, um, I mean, it's exploded into something much bigger than that, I think. Um, oh, absolutely. Well, for example, there was a segment on NFTs on Saturday Night Live and they created one for the segment with Pete Davidson and it just sold for, I believe, six figures. Oh I could goodness. be wrong on that, but just because it was on the show, which leads yeah. me to wonder, this seems awfully bubblicious. Do you see that at all? And is there is there a way to protect yourself if you do want to dip a toe into NFTs to make sure that this thing right. doesn't completely bust and becomes valueless? So I don't think it's ever going to bust and become valueless. I think it, it does follow similar um trends as bitcoin where it does it goes through these hype these ups and downs uh these hype cycles and low cycles but ultimately i think the technology is is here to stay just like it is in bitcoin i mean you you're all you hear on the news is is when it's skyrocketing or when it's when it's falling down um but what's it is peaking up into i'd say mini bubbles i wouldn't necessarily call them bubbles because there is it's, it's more hype than bubble what do you make of the NBA getting in on this game and people buying highlight NFTs, which, by the way, if you buy a highlight of LeBron slam dunk in some game for the Lakers, people can just clip the actual video. Can they not? And so they have it. Yeah, you own the, the location of it digitally, but other people can have it and show it to their friends. No. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, hundred um, percent. I, I think it goes back to the ownership aspect. I mean, anyone can print off a Mona Lisa and hang it on their wall, but it, it really means nothing unless you have that ownership. Um, I think NBA Top Shots is a it's a breakthrough um, for NFTs in particular, simply because of the traction that the NBA has. I mean, and the history they have um, with collectible cards and all that kind of stuff. So I think they've really set a new bar and i think they've really set a new standard for these various collectible items whether they're trading cards or whether they're little toys or um the beanie baby like things right this is everyone talks to liz and we'll be right back we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search 
match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listen Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I look at my first tweet just as... Jack Dorsey did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm in the public eye barely. I'm in the, I'm in the public eye lash. Um, <laughs> I'm only cable famous. But let's say I went way back because I was the first anchor on Fox Business to have a Twitter account. And I find my first tweet. Where do I go to sell that if I were to do that? I would recommend, I think it's called Valuables. Google it. I think it's a part of the Scent project, um, just C-E-N-T. Um, uh, I think they, they do that right because at, at the end of the day, you're, you're buying or selling content. Um, there's a, I think there's like a half dozen other projects who are all selling tweets. Um, but this one in particular, when anybody can go and list your tweet for sale, but you as the creator and the author need to go there and say, no, no, I approve. I own the Twitter account and I approve this tweet to be made. Who prices it? The buyers, whoever's so interested in it. it so it's when, like an auction. Absolutely. Yeah. It goes to the highest bidder. And obviously Christie's is getting in on this. And then Christie's sold the Beeple and Sotheby's said, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're leaving money on the table here. They're involved in it. I mean, Taco Bell is doing it. Right now, it seems that there are many different areas. What do you anticipate will really become the next true valuable NFT? Um. I, I personally, I still have a high affinity for the metaverse land. I think, uh, especially with the current global situation, um, more and more people are going more and more digital. And I think people are going to want a space, a virtual space to hang their, their virtual art, um, or even just to like communicate with people and socialize. Um, so I think there's a, a huge use case there. And then the other one is domain names. I think that's a good thing to decentralize. Um, so currently there is uh, ICANN who, who manages all the .com domain names and they're their central authority and they can do kind of whatever they want, whenever they want. Um, so I think anything that is, anything that's almost become like a public service um, should become an NFT. Um, it should become decentralized and, and ultimately, yeah, democratized. I think collectibles still have quite a run. So like, yeah, when I'm talking about collectibles, like, yeah, NBA Top Shots, mm-hmm. Crypto Kitties is pretty collectibles. Like Crypto Punks have shown amazing uh, traction lately. What's a Crypto um, They were the, basically the original NFT on Ethereum. They were the one who, they were the ones who really uh, got the most hype before Crypto Kitties. They were mid 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, there were only 10,000 created. Um, so they have that scarcity built in and every single one of those 10,000 is unique. No more can ever be created by those developers. So there, there's a, a huge appeal to those um, being that they're extremely limited. Dan, what kind of income have you, and I don't need specific numbers, but have you been able to land 
through your nonfungible.com website. And has it enabled you to live a life that you only envisioned when you were 15 and working in the plant, the manufacturing plant? It's, it's hard to describe. Um, it's beyond what I ever could have expected. I think even from a financial point of view, I mean, the company's doing amazing. Um, we're expanding very quickly and hiring, we're hiring quite a few people very quickly, but yet the financial aspect is when we started non-fungible, it was really to provide value to the community and kind of be that anti-bubble um, so that people can always come and do their research before they're jumping into something. But what the company is really turning into is something much bigger than I think I even kind of could have envisioned myself uh, if it was just me. I'm, luck I'm, I'm lucky to have an extremely uh, talented business partner out in France, and he really helps um, have that product vision um, into getting into all these other services that are really bringing in money. When you splurge with your income, do you splurge on real things or do you splurge on digital things? Like, did you buy a Lambo <laughs> or something? I mean, talk to me. Not yet, not yet. No, I think uh, I'm still, uh, my wife is, uh, she, she's been calling me lately, new money, Dan. Um, <laughs> and not, I'm just not used to it. I mean, last time I, I made a big NFT sale, I, I, I basically just, I went and converted some of it into Bitcoin that I'm just going to hold forever. Um, and then I, I used some of the other one to go buy more NFTs. And we didn't really withdraw much of that into fiat. Um, so it's... <laughs> I think we're still learning how to live with this this newfound uh, success. No Rolex. <laughs> no Rolex yet. Nothing here. No. Uh, no watch. As you can see behind me, no renovations oh, here. But <laughs> stock? Do you buy stock in companies? Does that interest you? I don't want to get too, I guess, outlandish or or too conspiracy theory, but I think I try to stay away from public stock markets. Um, I think. And we've had a hard time with it, just with our company as well. I think once a company goes on a public stock market, their their company valuation seems to become largely decorrelated from the actual value of the business. Um, I don't want to cast any stones, but I mean, we can take Tesla as a perfect example. The actual value of the contracts that they have and the 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 um, like all the materials they have and the the stocks or the the value they have doesn't. It's a lot of speculation. It's too much speculation. It's over-speculated. Um, and I think that's yeah part of what we're trying to do with nonfungible.com is to kind of push down that speculation a little bit and be like, okay, let's let's come back to real life here a little bit. Um, do your research. What is it actually selling for? Where is the real value here? If Tesla went belly up tomorrow, I'd be surprised if they could pay back 5% of those investors. Hmm. And yet you're saying that the market is pricing these non-fungible tokens and the market's pricing Tesla stock. That's the thing. I mean, people see it a, yeah. a certain value and they see the mm -hmm. people at 69 million. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, um, I mean, I, I can't speak for the people piece uh, to be quite frank. I shouldn't even be speaking for Tesla, um, but it's, it is, there's, it's a lot of over speculation. We just need to, bring people back down to reality. I mean, everybody's, they want to put in their $10 and come back with $100 tomorrow. Um, I just don't, if we think about it realistically, I mean, where does that value come from? You can't just create that from thin air. I mean, if you if you give something $10 and you expect it to be $100 tomorrow or next week, like that has to be put to work in the right way. It just doesn't magically happen. Before we go, let's just say we've got people 
who back in your early years, like you are toiling in a factory and they dream mm -hmm. of finding the passion that you have found with nonfungible.com and, and of course the wealth that comes with that. What is your number one piece of advice to them? Um, just do it. Uh, you're never too late. Don't ever think that you're too late for anything and just stay focused. Um, I think there's yeah, those two things. I mean, you're not too late and stay focused um, and just yeah, follow what it is you want. Don't let anyone tell you um, that you can't do it. I mean, there's, yeah, there's some professions that you need that education for, but a lot of things you can learn on your own. Uh, it takes time and it takes discipline, but um, it's worth it for sure. And you did it. And there is a mm. saying that I would love all of our listeners to hear, and that is, it's never too late to become who you might have been. And I think that's what Dan's saying. It is never too late. Don't look at age, look at passion and, and go out and mm -hmm. grab it. Dan Kelly, thank you so much. I still don't understand a lot of this and what you've told me, but heck, you know, it's a beginning for NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Liz. Anytime. Cheers. Come on the show too. And speaking of the show, Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern, by the way, everybody, I can't even believe I'm about to say this. Our 100th episode of Everyone Talks to Liz is next week. I remember when we launched this two years ago with one idea and, and Fox said, just try it, just do it. And I was the only one at the Business Channel who did the podcast of, of her own, my own. And, and, and we've turned it into an American dream library of stories like Dan's, like all of them. And I, I encourage you to go back and listen to so many, but our 100th episode will be incredibly exciting. I can't wait for you all to hear it. So stay tuned. Have a great day. And thank you so much. <laughs>